Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. After a long break, I'm back with a new episode featuring the poem Defeat by the Lebanese-American artist and poet Khalil Gibran. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Hey, poetry fans. It's been a minute. When I started this podcast in 2020, I thought that doing these episodes would be easier than it turned out to be. One poem a week? No problem. Well, as they say, man makes plans and God laughs. Also, I intended to do a historical survey beginning with the Renaissance and Reformation period and working my way forward to today. But while that constraint sounded fun at the time, it made these episodes into a chore. It's much more exciting to me to read and interpret poems as they come up and inspire me, rather than trying to be a history teacher too. Live and learn, right? So in this episode, I'm going to cover a poem that I found recently, which spoke to me during a particularly difficult season, and it's by one of my favorite authors, Khalil Gibran. You might know that name from his classic, The Prophet, which is a book of prose poetry in which a Christ-like figure, the titular prophet Al-Mustafa, delivers a series of sermons on love, marriage, joy and sorrow, pain, pleasure, beauty, death, prayer, and more, before sailing away to his home forever. I'm sure you can see the parallels. The prophet has also been part of my life for 20 years. I think of its beautiful lessons often, and it makes a great wedding gift. Many of its chapters are used as speeches for bridesmaids and groomsmen during wedding toasts. It's in the public domain now, so you can find PDFs online and cheap knockoffs on Amazon, but I'll provide a link in the show notes to a favored hardcover version that I hope moves and inspires you as much as it's inspired me. But for all the times I've flipped to a random page and enjoyed the heartfelt wisdom of the prophet, I've never read the rest of Gibran's work. Until recently, that is, when I found this poem, or I should say when this poem found me. I don't remember where this poem came from. I just know that it arrived when I needed it, as great art tends to do. So with that introduction out of the way, let's get back to the poetry. Khalil Gibran is a single artist with two reputations, one as a beloved figure in the Romantic movement that transformed Arabic literature in the first half of the 20th century, and the other as a best-selling but sentimental English writer whose work sold well but was dismissed by his critics who were more enamored of his grittier contemporaries like T.S. Eliot. James Joyce, and Ernest Hemingway. Khalil Gibran was born in 1883 in Ottoman Syria, which is now part of modern Lebanon. He was born Maronite Christian, which is a branch of the Eastern Catholic Church. His great-grandfather on his mother's side converted from Islam to Christianity. Gibran grew up in poverty, the child of his mother's third marriage. His father turned out to be as much of a winner as the previous two husbands, He was an alcoholic gambler and womanizer with extensive unpaid debts. While acting as a tax collector, a disreputable position, 
he was imprisoned for embezzlement and the family's property was confiscated by the authorities. So Khalil's mother, Camilla, decided with her brother to move to the United States in 1895, taking Khalil and his four siblings with them. They moved to Boston's South End, into a large community of Syrian and Lebanese Americans, and his mother worked as a seamstress selling garments door-to-door, while Khalil enrolled in art school. There, Khalil met the famous photographer Fred Holland Day, who produced a series of photos of Khalil's handsome young face. And at an exhibition of these photos, Khalil met the poet Josephine Preston Peabody, with whom he may have become romantically involved. He was 15, and she was 23. Shortly after, at the urging of his family, Khalil returned to his homeland to study Arabic literature, to absorb the influences of his native culture, and perhaps also to get him away from the degenerate influences of his American artistic friends. Khalil graduated with high honors and went on to study painting in Paris. But his sister's untimely death from tuberculosis brought him back to Boston, where he lost his brother and mother less than a year later. In January 1904, he held his first exhibition of his drawings at Holland Day's studio. There he met the headmistress of a girls' school, Mary Haskell, a woman nine years his senior, who would go on to become his great patron. Though details about their relationship at that time are unclear, Gibran did propose to her at one point, quote, not knowing how to pay her back in gratitude. However, Haskell declined, saying, quote, she preferred his friendship to any burdensome ties of marriage. However, Haskell continued to use her wealth and influence to advance Gibran's career. Gibran began publishing his written work in 1905, and one of his first books was burned in the marketplace of Beirut by priestly zealots who called it, quote, dangerous for its questioning of secular and religious authority, and apparently he was almost excommunicated from the Maronite church over it. A decade later, Theodore Roosevelt's younger sister, Corrine, called his poems, quote, diabolical and destructive stuff, though they later became friends. While living in Manhattan, Gibran also befriended the famous psychologist and psychiatrist Carl Jung, as well as the poet William Butler Yeats. And over the next 10 years, his reputation grew as his most significant works were published, including The Madman, The Tempests, and finally The Prophet in 1923, which sold well despite a cool critical reception. During the Great Depression, The Prophet still sold 13,000 copies per year, and it sold over a million copies within its first three decades of release. Today, The Prophet has sold more than 9 million copies in the U.S. alone, and it's been translated into a hundred languages. Gibran knew he'd never equal the creative and commercial achievement of the prophet, though in 1928 he published his longest book, Jesus, the Son of Man, his words and his deeds as told and recorded by those who knew him. In this work, 78 people who knew Jesus, some real, some imaginary, speak about him from various points of view. Gibran's success was short-lived, however. He passed away in 1931 from cirrhosis of the liver, a result of his excessive drinking. At the time, he was working on a sequel to The Prophet, entitled The Garden of the Prophet, about man's relationship with nature. PoetryFoundation.org says of a planned third book entitled The Death of the Prophet, only one sentence was written, quote, And he shall return to the city of Orphalees, and they shall stone him in the marketplace, even unto death, and he shall call every stone a blessed name. Gibran is buried in his hometown of Bashari in Lebanon, at a former monastery that is now the Gibran Museum. 
he willed all his future royalties to his hometown as well. That seemed like a good idea at the time, but his generous gift became a source of both blessing and corruption, considering the vast sums of money involved. But that's another story for another time. After Gibran's death, his secretary was going through his papers and discovered that he had kept all of Mary Haskell's love letters to him. Those letters were later published, along with 300 of his own letters to her, in Virginia Hailu's book, Beloved Prophet, which is also available on Amazon. Gibran's legacy has been an example of the divide between everyday readers in search of beauty and critics in search of relevance. During his life, Gibran was published alongside Robert Frost and T.S. Eliot, but since his death, critics have dismissed him as sentimental, sappy, and overly mystical. But who cares what critics think? Because Khalil Gibran is also the best-selling American poet of the 20th century. Let that sink in. If I were tempted to play the social justice game, I might point out how racist it is that Gibran, an immigrant, isn't considered alongside other, lighter-skinned contemporaries for his remarkable contributions to poetry. But that would be silly, because race has nothing to do with it. The real answer is elitism. Books and poetry that uplift the common man, that give hope and inspiration to everyday people, are a threat to academics and insiders who think they have the right to determine artistic merit and thus beauty for the rest of us. That is a real thing. Without taking anything away from Robert Frost and others, I believe Khalil Gibran is dismissed because he makes beauty accessible and universal. His success proves that art isn't the domain of the elite, but everyone. Beauty is a right, like air, water, and freedom of speech. But when people have access to beauty, they start pushing back against the ugliness that pervades our culture. That is why I believe Gibran is dismissed. In a century dedicated to the proliferation of ugliness in the public square, from architecture to music, fashion, and more, Gibran celebrates beauty that speaks to our longing souls. And for those who seek to uglify our culture, this cannot be allowed. The serfs might get uppity. Anyone who practices art to any degree knows that beauty often seems to have a will of its own. It chooses its vessels. Effort can bias the odds in your favor so that you're present when the muse shows up, but ultimately birthing great art is somewhat out of our hands. Why a timeless message like that of the prophet chose Khalil Gibran, we'll never know. But I hope this week's poem lends some insight into what beauty might have loved about him and teaches you something about yourself and me in the process. So after a long break, which I hope not to repeat, I present to you Defeat by the best-selling American poet of the 20th century, Khalil Gibran. Defeat. My defeat. My solitude and my aloofness. You are dearer to me than a thousand triumphs, and sweeter to my heart than all world glory. Defeat. My defeat. My self-knowledge and my defiance. Through you I know that I am yet young and swift of foot, and not to be trapped by withering laurels, and in you I have found aloneness and the joy of being shunned and scorned. Defeat, my defeat, my shining sword and shield. In your eyes I have read that to be enthroned is to be enslaved, and to be understood is to be leveled down, and to be grasped is but to reach one's fullness, and like a ripe fruit to fall and be consumed. Defeat, my defeat, my bold companion. You shall hear my songs and my cries and my silences, and none but you shall speak to me of the beating of wings and urging of seas 
and of mountains that burn in the night, and you alone shall climb my steep and rocky soul. Defeat, my defeat, my deathless courage, you and I shall laugh together with the storm, and together we shall dig graves for all that die in us, and we shall stand in the sun with a will, and we shall be dangerous. You few, you happy few who have been listening to this podcast from the beginning, may recognize similar themes in this poem to the first podcast I ever recorded, the poetry episode featuring The Man Watching by Rainer Maria Rilke. That wasn't intentional, but it fits. Because men are funny creatures, as you may have noticed. We adorn ourselves in medals, mount our trophies on the wall, post pictures of our triumphs, and honor those who contribute to our victories. But we are less willing to discuss the road to those victories, which, frankly, looks a lot like defeat. A paradox hides in this. A man's defeat is considered shameful, and yet no great victory can be earned by a man without a string of defeats, if only in private. Men know this and pretend they don't, or they forget. As a result, men are apt to look at their brothers bleeding in the dirt and laugh at or scorn them, rather than perceiving them as taking a necessary step to some greater victory. Or rather, men without vision do that. And though sadly there are plenty of those, poets like Khalil Gibran remind us that men of vision do exist, and that their way of seeing can inform our own sight of our brothers and ourselves. So with that in mind, let's begin. This poem is structured like a love letter, and it's addressed to defeat, both as a personal and impersonal force. Each stanza opens with the phrase, defeat, my defeat, and I don't think this is a stylistic touch. I hear Gibran addressing defeat as a universal being, and also something very personal to him. Because defeat is something all men must suffer, if they're honest with themselves, but every man's defeats are unique, so defeat is both a universal force and a personal experience. Defeat. My defeat. And the power of the poem derives from just how deeply Gibran has allowed defeat into himself. He's not keeping either defeat in general or his personal defeat at arm's length. He says at the start, You are dearer to me than a thousand triumphs, and sweeter to my heart than all world glory. Try to imagine something that you would consider more dear than a thousand triumphs or all world glory. That is how dear defeat has become to him and why the poem has the character of a love letter, because it is. In the first stanza, he juxtaposes that sincere affection with the phrase, my solitude and my aloofness. The imagery that comes later in the poem is so vivid, it's easy to forget these mild opening lines, but our subconscious grabs a hold of them to set the stage for what comes next. Because Gibran is alone, at a remove from the world, and yet having a powerfully intimate experience, in his solitude and his aloofness, he is communing with something dearer than triumph and sweeter than glory. We're still orienting ourselves in the work, and yet it's clear right away that we're being allowed deep within his being. It's a gripping introduction, even if we can't consciously understand why. I almost feel like the stanza could stand alone with no further commentary. But Gibran continues and begins opening up with the powerful capital R romantic literary force that he and his contemporaries were known for. One of the aspects of love, at least for men, for I know that men and women love differently, is that we learn about ourselves reflected in the mirror of our beloved. And what we see isn't always what an outsider would expect. 
because love produces a chemical reaction in the man experiencing it. The end results are often unpredictable. In the same way, Gibran's intimacy with defeat begins to teach him things about himself that a reader might find paradoxical. How does defeat show him that he's young and swift of foot? How can being shunned and scorned be joyful? Aren't laurels aspirational? The answer is because defeat has shown him that he has not yet arrived. He is not yet what he can be. He is still on the journey versus having reached his destination. That is why the laurels are withering. As soon as you pluck the laurel plant and put it on a head, the laurel begins to wither and die. In the same way, a man on his path must be young and swift of foot to continue forward against the pursuit of his opponents and time. And a man who isn't shunned and scorned is the winner, the man in the laurels, the man who has ceased striving, the man who no longer needs to strive. There are some profound ideas about masculinity wrapped up in here. The first idea is that it's about the journey, not the destination. We've all said it, and we know that it's true. Looking back, the actual victory is never as enjoyable as the adventure we went on to get there. Also concealed in here is the motive power of a man's purpose. It is well known amongst men that retirement is a dangerous time for us, because once a man no longer has his career, he often loses his chief reason to live. So men of a certain age find other pursuits to orient them, like fishing, writing, or painting, or else they risk the inevitable decline that follows a life of unfulfillment. These two truths point to another paradox that lives in the hearts of men. The first, as I mentioned, is that defeat is considered shameful, even though we know it's part of the process. And the second paradox of being a man is that we long to achieve our goals, and yet we feel a sense of emptiness when we do. We finally have what we want, and we discover it's not enough. Gibran resolves these paradoxes by celebrating defeat as an indication that he has not yet achieved his goal. He's savoring the fullness of pursuit itself as enough. Gibran says that defeat is the very essence of life. Victory is life's end. And if life is to be savored, so must defeat be as well. He finds meaning in the one place men are not supposed to. Defeat. The rest of this poem increases in power and glory like an overture as he expands into this concept. He writes, In your eyes I have read, personifying defeat by looking it in the eyes. Then, to be enthroned is to be enslaved echoes in a towering voice. It almost begs to be a tattoo in the best possible way. To be understood is to be leveled down, speaks to the virtues of remaining mysterious to the public, and to be grasped is but to reach one's fullness and like a ripe fruit to fall and be consumed. In the previous stanza, Gibran celebrated the virtues of defeat. In this stanza, he takes a sledgehammer to our cherished notions of victory. Maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. Victory burdens us with responsibility. True. It reduces us from infinite potential to finite actuality. True. And to win makes you part of the public forever, consumed like a ripe fruit. Do you think of victory in those ways? The fourth stanza is the most abstract. The beatings of wings and urging of seas and mountains that burn in the night? What do they signify? They don't seem tied to anything else in the poem that we can use to figure them out. Since this is in the form of a love letter, I think these are personal references to his lover that we're not meant to understand, as if we were reading Sweet Nothings exchanged with Mary Haskell. 
Gibran says in the poem, None but you shall speak to me, which to me indicates that shared secret. As for the imagery, I imagine him on a cruise ship on one of his many trips to and from Paris, looking out his window at soaring birds while developing his early works, or hearing of the gallery fire that destroyed his painting collection before he had established himself as a writer. I speculate that defeat was with him in those moments, but only he and defeat can know for sure. He concludes the stanza, and you alone shall climb my steep and rocky soul. Gibran has allowed defeat onto his soul, which is a difficult ascent. He holds himself in high esteem. He recognizes that he as a man is not easily overcome, but he allows defeat to ascend his heights. Because for him to embrace defeat fully, it must reach his summit. For a man of his genius, perhaps only defeat can do that. Moving to the end of the poem, what begins as a love letter closes as a battle cry. The first line refers to how defeat is dear and sweet to him, like a young lover. But by the end, defeat is his spouse. They are one. The use of the word shall in this stanza expresses a supremely confident declaration. Not, I am going to do this thing, but, I shall do this thing. He and defeat laugh amidst the storm and dig graves for the ideas, dreams, family members, and perhaps even friendships that died along the way in their great journey of life together. And when the graves are dug and the storm has passed, Gibran and his defeat stand in the sun, renewed. And there they stand, with a will. Gibran doesn't write, and I shall stand in the sun. He writes, we shall stand in the sun. He with defeat, his defeat. He has found union with his lover, his dear one, his wife, and together with his bride, at last he becomes dangerous. Are you ready for war yet? Because Gibran has been building you to this the whole time. At the start of each stanza, he says, defeat, my defeat, and then describes what defeat is to him. My solitude and my aloofness, my self-knowledge and my defiance, my shining sword and shield, my bold companion, my deathless courage. What could you do as a man if you had all those things? What couldn't you do? What if your sword, shield, companion, defiance, self-knowledge, solitude, aloofness, and your deathless courage was all contained in an aspect of life you reject, hide, and deny? This is what it means to be a man of vision, to see beneath surface appearances, to see potential and possibility, to judge nothing in others or yourself until the inevitable end is achieved. Can you live this way, my brother? Can you rise to Gibran's example? Does his wisdom about life now live in you? Can you make his sight your own? I began this analysis by remarking that this poem bears an unintentional resemblance to my first poem, The Man Watching, by Raina Maria Rilke. Rilke and Gibran were contemporaries. They were both capital R romantics. They both died young. They both have mystical leanings and both deserve a higher place of honor in 20th century literature than they currently receive. Rilke's book, Letters to a Young Poet, is still a global bestseller, and Gibran's prophet is as well. Both authors speak to the beauty of life, of suffering, of art, and of creation, and both have been part of my story for many years. So following a difficult season, I'll stand in the sun. Once again, this is Defeat by Khalil Gibran. Defeat, my defeat, 
my solitude and my aloofness. You are dearer to me than a thousand triumphs and sweeter to my heart than all world glory. Defeat, my defeat, my self-knowledge and my defiance. Through you I know that I am yet young and swift of foot and not to be trapped by withering laurels. And in you I have found aloneness and the joy of being shunned and scorned. Defeat, my defeat, my shining sword and shield. In your eyes I have read that to be enthroned is to be enslaved, and to be understood is to be leveled down, and to be grasped is but to reach one's fullness, and like a ripe fruit to fall and be consumed. Defeat, my defeat, my bold companion, you shall hear my songs and my cries and my silences, and none but you shall speak to me of the beating of wings and urging of seas and of mountains that burn in the night, and you alone shall climb my steep and rocky soul. Defeat, my defeat, my deathless courage. You and I shall laugh together with the storm, and together we shall dig graves for all that die in us, and we shall stand in the sun with a will, and we shall be dangerous. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.